Welcome back, folks. We are incredibly excited to have Rick Wormley on the show today. Rick uh, was one of the first nationally board certified teachers in the United States. Rick brings 38 years of teaching experience in math, science, English, phys ed, pretty much every content area. Rick's work has been featured on Good Morning America, National Geographic Magazine, and the Washington Post. He's a frequent contributor to AMLE Magazine. Uh, and Rick is the author of the award-winning book, Meet Me in the Middle, as well as the best-selling books, Day One and Beyond, and his classic, Fair Isn't Always Equal, which is going to be republished, and hopefully he can talk to us about that tonight. Rick lives in Herndon, Virginia with his wife and two children, both of whom are now out of college. Yay, Rick. He accomplished that. Uh, and he's currently working on a new book on shifting the culture of a school for ethical grading practices. Once again, it's great to have Rick on the show tonight on Ed's Not Dead. Well, Rick, um, all three of us uh, at one time in our career or another were, were middle-level educators, worked in middle schools. And um, I'm going to start out, standards-based grading is probably going to be where we spend a lot of our time. But I was curious about how your experience as a teacher, as someone that, that has worked with teachers and principals in the middle grades, how did your experience in, in the middle grades lead you to standards-based grading as kind of a a linchpin of your thinking about what's best for early adolescents in middle schools? Wow, that's a really big question. Um, I think the first place it comes from is knowing very specifically what is developmentally appropriate for 10 to 15-year-olds, which is considered young adolescents. And if you look at all of that research, a lot of which is on the AMLE website, you know, amle.org, right. the uh, Association for Middle-Level Education, They've got a lot of great stuff, and some of that in there is assessment and grading, and it talks about ethical, accurate grading that is evidence-based, criterion-referenced, and you really can't make decisions unless the grade is really accurate. Otherwise, it's a false decision based on a false premise, and you're not instructionally very responsive. So we decided that we'd live up to that promise, that we would kind of close the gap between saying what we do and what we actually do, so our grades would have integrity. Because we realized really, really quickly in middle school, you were building really very real futures uh, that, you know, lives that are functional or dysfunctional. And sometimes the difference can be one dumb percentage point. Yeah. So we decided we needed to dive in and really explore what does it mean to have an accurate grade. And then we found out that when you give a separate report for work habits and character and behavior, mm -hmm. that it actually elevates it on their radar scope. They mm -hmm. care more about it. And what was really cool for us is we found that the kids mature in those character, work habits, self-discipline, meets deadlines, executive function things way faster and for longer when they had a separate radar scope reporting it. So we split the two, and that was the first step going into standards-based grading. Awesome. What, Thank you. Well, how, do you. how do you make sure when you're working with schools and teachers, how do you follow up and make sure that teachers are maintaining high expectations throughout their practice. I think sometimes when they're ask when you're asking them to change a grading system or to change their thinking about grading, sometimes people I I heard the quote earlier today, cook the books and and sometimes they 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 make false um grading practices or or, or something like that. I, I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that correctly, but um how do you maintain those high expectations? Well, you really don't. Next question. No. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Go ahead. No, just... no. I like that. That's a good no. pass. No, 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 no. I, I got to tell you, there's been an explosion of research on teacher disposition in the past you know, eight to ten years. A lot of new books and articles coming out just about that. 
And what you're talking about is a moral imperative. Right. And also, you know, dealing with teachers and, you know, do they want to have integrity? What do they think grades really mean? Should they be accurate? Yes. Okay, good. What does that mean you would do in your class if you weren't a hypocrite? Right. And a lot of times (laughs) teachers say, I think grades should be accurate, but I do this other stuff that makes a grade inaccurate. And you're like, well, (laughs) let's take a look at that. Right. On the other hand, though, you know, I can be intellectual and logical all I want, and it doesn't really change a whole heck of a lot. But if I'm logical and well-reasoned as a colleague or a building leader, that, and I add in the moral imperative, the ethical side, people suddenly are willing to get candid and look at practice and make changes. Like, I don't think it's too weird or teacher over-the-top geekoid goody-goody for a teacher in the middle of a meeting, department meeting, faculty meeting, to say something like, is this the moral thing we do? And some people might roll their eyes like, oh, no, why are you doing that? Just tell me how to clean up the book room and the latest testing protocols. I don't <laughs> want to dive that, that deeply. And that's a problem. So, you know, Todd Whitaker would advise all of us that really the high quality uh, learning that happens in the classroom is based on the high quality people that you hire. So the first thing is you get people who are really cool, really interested in integrity and accurate grades. That's going to be a big deal. Will people, people get tired from time to time and make bad decisions? Yes. But do you have systems set up or at least a culture set up where we're willing to confront our colleagues in whatever nurturing diplomatic way we need to hold them accountable for the very thing they swore to protect and to, and to elevate. Right. Yeah, we can do that too, but it it does get difficult. And I think that, you know, one of the things a building leader can do is run interference and facilitate and have this accessibility that when the teacher is stressing out and is on that borderline, do I do the wrong thing or do the right thing by the kids in my profession that I can go to my colleagues or my, my principal and say, Hey, I'm struggling here. Can you, can you offer a lending hand? Right. Uh, Rick, I have this, um, I have this question that always eats at me. I, I went from being an elementary principal to a middle school principal. And one of the primary differences that I saw between the two school levels was the approach of teachers to grades. Um, and, you know, people like Jacqueline Eccles, you know, 30 years ago, were doing research on, on junior high school teachers and middle school teachers' emphasis on performance versus more of a mastery growth approach in elementary schools. Can you point to anything in the secondary school slash middle school environment that, that helps teachers, for lack of a better word, become more oriented towards performance where they should be more focused on mastery and growth? Well, to be really honest, I think a lot of secondary teachers are primarily trained in their subject areas, not necessarily the unique nature of 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, or 13-year-olds. And that needs to change. And when I go in to work with a school district or a school for like multiple years or something, I come in for multiple dates, or I just work with them by email or, or Zoom or Google Hangout or something, one of the first things we do is when we're going to go to standards-based grading is we spend the whole first year merely talking about cognitive science. What is unique about teaching freshmen that's very different than teaching high school seniors, for example, or eighth graders versus fourth graders or fifth Mm -hmm. graders or whatever it happens to be. And once teachers understand the developmental nature, the unique developmental nature of the students they serve, they begin almost immediately to see the parallels between that and standards-based grading. Now, this idea that I have to you know, measure your performance. Yeah, that's great. But do I see that as diagnostic 
not the final summative declaration of all you are? And do I really empower you for self-efficacy for growth? I can do both things, but the goal is that we see assessments, mostly formative, as information, not judgment, not evaluation. And the students need to see that. And if they can't see that, then that's a huge problem. So the answer, I guess, you know, to sum up is that the, the teachers in middle school or high school who don't quite embrace this, that one, they get up to speed on cognitive science, the unique nature of the students they serve, right. but they also study human, uh, how do you cultivate self-efficacy and tenacity right. in morphing insecure humans? And not one bit of research, I've looked for this for decades, not one bit of research says, use your grades and your grading program to teach that stuff. <laughs> so yeah. really, we've we got to go back and really work with schools of teacher ed yeah. on, hey, how about a whole year on motivation, self-efficacy, executive function, all those things. And teachers would have such a cornucopia of practical tips on how to get kids to meet deadlines. And I think you're talking about the, I, well, the fact that you're talking about that is is so important because you're talking about teaching the child and not the yeah. subject. Obviously, the subject is important, but you're, t- you're talking about children, whether they're in ninth grade or sixth grade. It doesn't matter. And, and I think, yeah, and, and, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. A lot of, I'm just going to say a lot of middle and high school teachers find that, in a sense, soft skills. And they say, I'm not a counselor or psychologist, so don't bother <laughs> me with that stuff. Let me just teach my <laughs> subject. And I kind of look at them in the face, and I, I put my fingers about an inch apart, my, my pointer finger and my thumb, and I say, you're about this close to educational malpractice. Oh, I like I want to use that. (laughs) The reason for that is that 90% of everything that goes into a middle school child's head, young adolescent into regular adolescent, goes to emotional response centers first. So when they say that to me, what they're expressing to me is, I am uninformed. I need to go back and get teacher training because I'm teaching blind to the (laughs) students I serve. And in this day and age, that's not acceptable when so much is at stake. Right. I mean, Robert Balfons and so many others have proven that the way we interact in the world in our 40s, 50s, and 60s can be traced back to specific experiences we had in young adolescence. You can't leave emotional atmosphere to chance. I am a I am a huge Bob Balfans fan. He he is. <laughs> I, I love that reference. Right? All right, go ahead, Peter. Go ahead. So one of the things that we've talked about a bit here on the show is barriers to change and kind of the. The, the barriers to big change um, within school systems. And so I would say that standards-based grading for most people is um, a pretty big change. And I'm not even talking necessarily about students and teachers. I'm talking about like the community at large. So part of the reason that we've talked about is schools, um, you know, they need to kind of perpetuate what people view as schools as legitimate. And so everybody's kind of gone through the A to E scale. They understand an A is a 90 to 100, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you go about changing the beliefs and kind of getting people to believe in standards-based grading outside of the school system? Because, you know, they might bring home a letter grade that's not the traditional A to E, and they don't know what that means. They don't know how to access it. They don't know what exactly their kid is learning. Well, I got to tell you that grades, first and foremost, any book ever written in the last 25 years will say this. Grades, first and foremost, are uh, clear communication, honest, undiluted, absolute clear communication. So anything that would muddy the waters should be stopped or should be you know, revised in some way. So I would expect a school district to pay particular attention to how clear are things coming up, coming home, and can parents feel like they can work with their child, actually know what's going on with their child's learning much better 
if they switch to a new grading system. Right. If the switch just makes it murkier, then yeah, the parents are justified in saying, hey, this is not working mm. for us. The second thing is that we decided long ago, and most school districts that are successful do this, they decide they're gonna commit to parent education every single year the rest of their career. Not a three to five year parent education cycle and then everybody will be copacetic and on board. No, right. every single year because it's so indoctrinated to do otherwise. And then one of the coolest things you can do is start with common ground. I, I, any kind of controversial cultural shift, you wanna do that. So we say, hey, what do you think grades should represent? And people will say well, how kids are learning and their progress, <laughs> great. Let's take a look at the things that lead to that and the things that take away from that. And we identify those things. And then I have two favorite questions when I work with business leaders, school board members, and parents in the community who are questioning this. I say, first, tell me how you learned your craft. How'd you learn to be a lawyer, an EMT, a pharmacist, a police officer, an architect, a brake mechanic? It really doesn't matter what you do. How'd you learn that? And tiny, tiny down to the minutia, how'd you do it? And I point out parallels between that and standards-based assessment and grading, and they begin to see, oh, this is much more reflective of how someone becomes competent. For example, you get good at your job because you do it a lot, and somebody critiques you in between early on, and you take that advice, and you're a little bit better the next time, right. which is the beginning of the conversation on redos and retakes instead of one and done, and, and I just limit you to that one moment of really rather terrible teacher algorithm of teaching. <laughs> and the second thing I do is I say, how are you evaluated in your career? Tell me about that if you're a computer programmer or whatever it happens to be. And quite often they say, well, I have to present evidence of my performance. Right. I might be below plan, on plan, above plan. I'm meeting goals. I'm not meeting goals. And I'm like, dude, and do that. <laughs> Look, that's exactly what we're doing in standards-based grading. This is far more preparatory than the old antiquated, I'm going to average you with your earlier incompetence, even <laughs> though you're completely competent now. <laughs> no job does that can, anywhere. Can I, can I just say that whenever I have those statements from other teachers who talk about uh, not allowing a certain amount of reassessments and this arbitrary grading sure. practices, I, I will pull up YouTube videos, Rick Wormelli, uh YouTube videos, and they're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> I'm like, that's good. Well, you know, here's that, here's that part of that, what you just described. I find that a lot of teachers are in survival mode. They yeah. don't have a strong background. No, and, that's and right. That's totally okay. But they have this superficial response to it. And when they dive deeper, I mean, to the third or fourth level down, instead of first or second, they totally get it. In fact, because it I makes more sense a, than the current practices. Oh, yeah. But see, that's the problem. Teachers don't have time to dive deeply. And when right. they do, they're cool. So there's a plug for we need real time for reflection and analysis. I made this decision. It had this particular impact on students. And here's where I'm going to go next in that, which is a lot of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards work and, yep. and uh, PLCs and so on. Having some structure, teacher action research teams, whatever it might be, where we can do the, the deeper diving. All right. So one of the things we love about your work, Rick, is is how student centered it is. Standards based grading is student student centered. The obvious, the other obvious thing that we want to talk about tonight that is also all about kids is differentiation, especially as it relates to middle level and even even high school education. So I I um, all three of us have experience with with trying to make differentiation a focus, um, kind of a a, a go to in a, in a middle level school. Um, 
I, I do want to kind of set the stage for this question by by talking about Larry Cuban about 30 years ago had this theory that he called situationally constrained choice where he talked about the structures, the schedules in secondary ed, the 47-minute classes, how they really kind of constrain the instructional choices of teachers. It gets to that time element that you were referencing. So as we pivot to differentiation, how on earth do we help teachers meet the needs of uh, the different needs of kids when they have such constraints placed upon them, especially in secondary ed? Well, the first thing we have to realize is that teachers who are conscientious are going to have a real guilt trip over this because they got into business to actually make a difference. Right. And they are going to, they're going to feel it right in their gut and it's going to keep them awake at night and they eventually kind of get hardened to it just to survive the day and, and the week. Yep. And that's just pretty darn sad. That's what Cuban so, said, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the big deal is that we've got to get people to say this. It's totally okay. It's normal. You're still a high-quality professional educator. If you can do differentiation that's really effective 51% of the time or more, in other words, majority of the time you can do it, you can't do it all the time. Yeah. And then you should sleep guilt-free at night. That's the first <laughs> thing we have to, to – well, I guess it's, it's learning, you know, personal grace that you can begin to forgive yourself when you can't be completely thoughtful. Well, and, and I, try, I try to insert that. I try to insert that into the coaching that I do with teachers, where I'm not expecting you, as a first-year teacher, to differentiate every single thing that you do with kids every single day. It's just you have to become proficient in pieces of it at a time. Well, that's the other thing too that you're suggesting with that comment that you have to do it like every day all the time. That it's a myth that you're exactly right. Some teachers carry. Nobody's asking anybody in middle school or high school to do an IEP for all 185 of their students <laughs> every every single day. It, it just is physically impossible. And that's the other thing we have to realize that school, as it's set up now, actually is against really high quality learning and teaching. Ouch. And, you know, it's really, uh, it's, it, well, it's a function of the uh, Committee of Ten in the <laughs> 1870s to 1920s, yep. Yep. the standardized curriculum, the yep. high school, and their yep. big thing was 50-minute class periods. But i got to tell you, in middle school and high school, I've seen plenty of schools where it's 37-minute class periods because parents want their kids taking more courses during the day, right. which really translates to about 22 minutes of direct instruction where the kids are attentive. Boo. Based <laughs> on the coming in, setting down. So, you know, and then we say, well, and then we have the nerve to blame kids when they don't do well in some standardized test at the end of the year, or even a unit test when we're not applying what we know about how to carry things into long-term memory. Mm -hmm. So the testimony for a teacher is what kids carry forward, not what was taught. So we have to be very, very clear that teachers are going to have to get animal farm about this stuff. They're going to have to decide, you know, some animals are more equal than others. I'm not talking about (laughs) kids there. I'm talking about standards. Some of the stuff we teach is literally more leveraging for what's to come. And we've got to decide these are the primary boulders for these I will fight. And this other stuff is just nice to know, but we, I, I can't fit it in because physically school conspires against teaching. So that, that's going to help. And I, I love your comment about you do a little bit at a time. So first of all, you give yourself a three-year window. So the first year you're trying out like, I'll do flexible grouping for the next four weeks. Right. Okay. That was fun. And now I'll try, you know, I'll be responsive. And by the way, a lot of schools with whom I've worked and and heard about actually call differential instruction responsive teaching because now we're more mindful of the role it plays. 
and there's no political fallout because differentiated instruction with Mike Schmoker and others. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, I guess for whom I have written an article countering his points, disparaging differentiated instruction called Setting the Pedagogy Straight. I would be glad to send it to anybody. Ooh. It's available on the AMLE uh, uh, website. We need we, we we need that, Rick, because I actually, when I was a principal, had a teacher bring hand deliver an article by Schmoker to me to debunk yeah. well, my, my, my emphasis on it. Right. Well, uh, Caroline Tomlinson and I wrote both articles in response to him. He's really he really did not do his homework. Results now and focus. Awesome books. Boom. September 2010 editorial. Uh, and the portions of those two books that talk about differentiation, he knows not what he is discussing. Yes. It's really very frustrating. <laughs> uh, when he talks, he speaks out about it still to this day, even though he's been corrected. And that, I don't, I'm not really sure why he does that. But at any rate, I'll be glad to help people uh, find some language to use to kind of explain that and clarify that if they would like. But the idea that we would see myself or see each other as responsive teachers, like, what do I know about kids? And how did I respond to them to improve their learning over that which otherwise could have been achieved with one size fits all is basically that mindset. And if we see differentiation as a list of recipes in a cookbook, it's going to die. Yeah. It's got to be a disposition. It's 90% mindset yep. that I'm willing to teach so that you learn not just to play gotcha. Yeah. Hey, Rick, we got one more question for you, and this one's going to be a little bit, I don't want to say out of left field, but one of the reasons why I got you – we got you on. We're so interested. Is um, I really like your when you talk about zeros in education and the detrimental effect of zeros because as much, if not more, than anything in terms of grading practices, um, the the ease at which some some professionals can give out zeros I find really alarming. So can you maybe talk about a little bit about you know why zeros aren't okay? Because I think the common argument is. Hey, you know, at some point these kids got to learn cause and effect. They got to learn responsibility. If you didn't do it, they have to know how it feels to fail. They got to know how it feels to fail in order to kind of get that gumption to stand up and, and try again. So, can you, I guess, just talk a little bit and address some of those those points that are are fairly commonly held? Sure, I got to tell you though, um, to those that are concerned, they have to know how it feels to fail and learn consequences and all that. There is nothing, not one thing in any of the impetus that people are, are starting in their school districts that says we're taking away the experience of failure by simply making a zero turned into a 50, a 60, 59, or a 70, whatever it might be. They're absolutely getting the indicator failure every time. What we're deciding to do is, is it recoverable failure that actually creates hope? And that's the difference. Are you a, such an extraordinary failure that there's no hope of recovery? Or are you, yes, you have a failure, but we're equalizing the interval if a school district is still stuck averaging, which is an antiquated notion, by the way. <laughs> so most schools that get into the modern grading ethical practices of grading stop averaging as fast as they possibly can. But the zero has such a Ooh. skewing factor because you have a 10-point or 11-point interval for the A and a 10-point interval for the B, C, and the D, but you have 59 or 60 or 65-point interval for the F. So we're saying, look, make it an F. Like, I've I got to tell you, uh, as I've said in some of the videos I've done on YouTube, kids don't brag about this. You know, look at me. I didn't do anything at all, and I got a, a 59, you know, <laughs> on, my, on my essay. What they're saying is, look at me. I didn't do anything at all, and I still failed. I mean, the kids get it before the adults yeah. in their lives get it. Absolutely. And the other thing is, 
that when we ask teachers, well, we're going to apply the same exact philosophies to you in your evaluation, Ooh. they scream bloody murder. And they, you can't do that. And they say, exactly. The principles are universal. If you would not tolerate it applied to you, then what makes you think it's okay to apply it to these, these kids when you know it's a, actually a false statement? Yeah, the other thing to realize is that, you know, in the working world, nobody gets the zeros of any sort. And the brain is innately a survival organ. So it's going to self-protect in terms of ego and save face and save honor. And if a kid, you know, gets one zero and it requires six or seven perfect hundreds in a row just to have the average come up to a D, you know, level performance. And if a child gets a zero on something, chances are he already is, is something so wrong in his life, he's not going to get straight six hundreds in a row, but he's not, he's going to give up. And what we do is we're in middle school in particular, we're there to engender hope. And if we make a kid want to throw in the ball and go home, he won't invest in his learning and he'll turn away. Absolutely. So, so if a kid gets a zero, we have to make it a recoverable zero. It doesn't mean it's anything less than a complete zero in a sense. But what we simply do is we change the scale. I mean, if you think about it, you could use 50-point scale, and then you're totally fine yeah. using a zero if you needed to. Because, you know, every 10 points, it's an A, a B, a C, and a D, you know, and, and, or an F or E. And then when you average, it comes out to the same mathematical interval influence. But not so much when you use the 100-point scale. Yeah. The other thing that most people do when they get to standards-based grading is they drop the 100-point scale. Too many teachers are hiding behind the math to find their grading justifications or credibility, and I think we use the 100-point scale simply because the math is so darn easy. <laughs> and we, we, we have got to crawl out from underneath that rock and realize that we're going to analyze student products against evidence of the standard, a violative criteria, not boil it down to a mathematical calculation that statistically – can be arbitrarily manipulated in really any direction we want. Wow, this is I mean, there's more. There's more to that, but I, I want to give you a chance to. to have you should. You should questions. write a. You should write a book about this. Can I? Can I, I ask? Think I just might. I think you should. I actually have um, Andrew, uh, a, a guy who used to teach in my department, who um, he's communicated with you on Twitter a lot. He actually texted me a question at Mr. Cause. At Mr. Cause, he's a good friend of mine. He wanted me to ask you a question specifically, and he wants to know how to do standard-based grading within the traditional grading system. Is there, some, is there like tips and tricks or something that, that might be helpful for teachers who are trying to, to, to mold within the constraints of the, the system? And our time is up. Thank you all for playing again. <laughs> it's been great to have you, Rick. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. No, no. Andrew is is wonderful, and I appreciate all his contributions online. He's. I would be lucky to have my own children in his class, based on what I, I read of him and hear it in his. He's commentary. awesome. He's really good. But um, I got to tell you, there are lots of things you can do. I mean, you know, let's say you're not standards based. Oh well, no. We do things in the microcosm of our class that we need to do to be ethical with our kids, and we translate that into the school district's language so we can keep our job. But we also volunteer to be on the committee to revise grading and reporting. So here are a couple of really cool nuggets. One, you become totally evidentiary. This might take a year or three. And what that means is you really seriously sit down and say, what is evidence of the different levels of proficiency? So what's evidence of mastery, of proficiency, of developing, of emergent, or whatever your categories are, you really sit down and you vet that. You calibrate it with subject-like colleagues. Right. And if you're the only one in the building who teaches that, there's a, there are two new things we have out there called the telephone and the internet. 
<laughs> and you contact people at other schools and you say, okay, I'm the only one that teaches this, but talk to me, people. And then, of course, um, the, your subject associations will have lots of people willing to talk about it as well. So one is you really spend a heck of a lot of time saying, okay, when it comes to diffusion versus osmosis, what's excellent? What's almost excellent? What's intellectually agile, skillfully versatile? And, and you really kind of nail it down. You focus down on it. That's one. Second, you really get into, am I going to separate out my behavior, work habit stuff, from the final declaration of mastery of the stuff I tell everybody that I grade? Report cards are a contract between parents and schools. We think, uh, as a parent, that you're teaching this material. It's in the course curriculum. Right. So I think the grade speaks to that. If you put something else in there that is not in the course curriculum, you're knowingly falsifying the grade. So the teacher could say to an administrator, I'd like to pilot that makes everybody okay. That makes Just everybody excited. A new program, they freak out. <laughs> we just call it a pilot for the next 10 years, and it's good. <laughs> but um, I, I'm going to pilot having a separate addendum that will report, you know, that you uh, tutored young children, that you brought a, your supplies in a timely manner, that you meet deadlines, that you have a nice, neat notebook. All that stuff, I will give you a response, but it will be separated out from academics. That's a second great step. Third would be to develop some ideas, some parameters over doing redos, but because it's first steps, how about just doing redos for full credit, not partial credit, just for the four to eight power standards during an entire curriculum year. So for these, I will fight, and I'll do a redo maybe twice, and then I have to cut the line and move on or something. Right. That's a great first step. But if you say no redos, you basically said, I'm okay, child, with your incompetence. <laughs> And I got to ask, when did incompetence become okay? Oh, yeah, never. Yeah. It was it okay. And that's not a positive legacy or gift to any child or any next generation is, hey, to prepare you for the next level, I'm going to make you completely incompetent. <laughs> not cool. No. Uh, those, would be, those would be the first things. And, of course, you know, doing a book study or at least read four articles on it where you just kind of weigh the pros and cons with this. Or maybe you talk to some teachers who tried it a little bit. I can't. I, I mean, I've lost count. I really can't tell you how many times schools have told me it was a department. You know, it was a small group of teachers right. who decided to try it, and they gave testimony to the rest of the, uh, the faculty, and then it really took on a life of its own. I will tell you, though, it was a big cautionary tale to leadership that almost all, every time standards-based grading dies is because the leadership did not spend significant enough time on building capacity mm. for that change. They just changed it. And I, I right. mean, you've, you've got a year or two to build up, and then you mandate. You don't say, okay, you have to do it by this fall. And i, I got to tell you, I've had five schools tell me just recently that they were told three days before the start of school they were doing it like that, standards-based grading. Wow. And it was the first time they had ever heard of it. They were so upset. Oh, I mean, you're changing culture overnight. Right. That's, that's going to make anybody defensive. Yeah. All right, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, can you tell our audience uh, what you've written recently, what you'd like them to read, where they can find you, how they can get in touch with you? All of those things, yeah, you have yeah. to do that right now. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I hope you have at least you know 30 minutes for me to listen. Yeah, we got another 30. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, here, here's the deal. Uh, I've got a new version of Fair Isn't Always Equal, the second edition. It's 11 years later. Classic, Coming yes. out the end of March, and that's from Stenhouse Publishers. So you're welcome to go to stenhouse.com, S-T-E-N house.com, okay. and look that up. And I've been tweeting about it. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, because we have lots of conversations about these things, 
it's just my full name spelled out with a two on the end. So that's at R-I-C-K-W-O-R-M-E-L-I-2. And then there's rickwarmly.com. So just spell out the name and add .com. And there's lots of places there where you can email me if you'd like. And, you know, the email address, if you want it, is just a first initial and last name, rwarmly at coxcox.net. Uh, and then I, I've got articles in Ed Leadership. Um, the, one of my last books was The Collected Writings So Far, Rick Warmly, Crazy right. Good Stuff I Learned About Teaching Along the Way. And that's a whole bunch of articles I updated in a, on a variety of topics. I don't just talk about standards-based assessment sure. grading. There's, there's more to teaching than just that. Right? <laughs> All right, Rick. Well, one of the things that jumped out to me during the interview, um, and we certainly appreciate it, as we know our audience does, is how you've referenced – um, how this work is is good for kids as they go forward, not not looking behind at what they haven't been able to do, but what we're trying to contribute to their futures. Yep. So thank you so much. Uh, we are so psyched to have had you on. And um, on behalf of the boys, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Can I just say how grateful I am to know that Ed's not dead? Uh, it is not. <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks. All right. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Rick. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.